Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We come to the end of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for being with us. I got a great panel uh, to close out the week and talk about some of the big stories in political news that have taken place over the last five days. Uh, We start with Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim Galloway, thanks for being here today. No, I appreciate it. Welcome to fall with with weather that matches. Yeah, let's hope it just, from my point of view, I just hope it stays this way. I understand there are people out there who like those hot summers, but, you know, as a guy who grew up in Chicago— I look forward to these lower temperatures. Uh, Raul Bali from WABE is back with us. He's a politics reporter uh, for them. And he's also the co-host of a podcast called Georgia Votes 2022. Raul, I think you said that uh, a new episode of that uh, podcast is just dropped, right? We, we drop on Fridays and drop this morning. And uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, what was on the show this week. Cold weather tips. Um, thank you for... Thank you for being here. Audrey Haynes is back with us. Uh, you all know her. She's a professor of political science at the University of Georgia and also oversees the, the Applied Politics Program at UGA, which many of us have uh, been privileged to come out and speak to as Audrey's had us out there talking to her class. And Audrey, you made some news uh, a couple weeks ago because you had Speaker David Ralston come out and talk. And after his visit... He told reporters from the AJC that he was heartened to see their um, kind of more, um, what's the word, their interest in politics that made him feel uh, that he had to get away from all the negativity uh, because he thought they were much more idealistic than what he's used to in politics today. Have I said that about right, Audrey? Yes. I mean, the experience really uh, for him primarily, I think, was to interact with young people who really cared about public policy and cared about the process and actually appreciated some of the work that uh, the efforts that he had done on certain uh, areas of legislation, particularly the hate crimes bill, um, for example. And he talked about it very eloquently. And a lot of students um, asked questions that I think he felt were very informed and thoughtful not necessarily partisan in any way, but really about doing good, good public policy work. And I think that's where his heart is. Well, it, Jim Galloway and I have both been out at your class, and it is really a pleasure to get to talk to your students. Bernard Fraga is back with us. He's a political science professor at Emory University. And Bernard, it's been way too long uh, since you've done the show. I'm really glad to have you back with us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I really missed you all, uh, and I missed being able to to talk to folks and uh, talk about the news. I'm looking forward to today's session. Um, well, let me start with you. Um, the In 2020, Donald Trump attracted a somewhat larger percentage of the Hispanic vote uh, than, uh, than, Demo- than, than typical uh, uh, for Republicans, uh, uh, the Hispanic community tends to vote Democratic, and there was some surprise that Trump did better than expected uh, with um, uh, Hispanic voters. And it led Republicans, at least, to think that they were making big, big inroads and that they could win larger and larger shares of that vote. New York Times and Siena just released a poll of Latino voters, and they uh, that poll indicated to them that the reality is that those voters are still pretty squarely in the Democratic camp. So just start us off, Bernard, by telling us what you make of that poll, what it means, and how it could be significant looking at the midterm elections. Sure. I mean, you know, when I saw the poll come out from New York Times and Siena, um, you know, within the last week, you know, I noted kind of two things. One is that there was this uh, narrative that said that Republicans had basically solidified some of the gains that they made in 2020. Right. Uh, And by gains, I mean, you know, 
70% of Latino voters who voted voted for a Democrat, 30% voted for a Republican, perhaps, you know, 2020, maybe 65, 35. So those are the gains we're talking about. And this is the other point that I think is important to emphasize. A majority of Latino voters in Georgia, in other states, in every state other than Florida, are still supporting the Democratic Party. And I think the headline that we saw associated with that poll that said, you know, the Republicans have basically done all that they can. Um, They've made all the gains they're going to, and it's not so that they can go even further. I think that's another important takeaway. So certainly they've solidified the gains in 2020, but there might not be much more room for them to grow. Um, I, I think it's really important, though, uh, to, to stick with you for just a minute, to point out, and I always feel like we have to do this when we're talking about uh, uh, voters uh, who are in the minority. Uh, there's no such thing as a monolithic uh, Latino vote in the same way there's really no such thing as a monolithic vote in the black community, although we know that black voters tend to go uh, Democratic. But we got to be clear about that, right, Bernard? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, part of a longstanding trend. I mean, you can go back to presidential elections where we had exit poll data in the 2000s, even earlier than that. And you see that there's always been a a measurable um, share, larger than for the African-American community, a a larger proportion of Latino voters supporting Republicans, but not a majority. Um, That is not manifested. And given the low rates of voter turnout among Latinos, there's another point here, uh, much of Trump's gains and Republican gains maybe going forward are not so much converting, uh, you know, Latino Democrats over to the Republican side, but really mobilizing uh, new Latino voters, newly registered, not participating in the past, mobilizing those voters and bringing them into the Republican fold uh, from the get-go. So I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. Latinos are not a monolith, but the Latino electorate itself is so dynamic that sometimes polls don't tell the whole story. Jim, uh, let me just go over some of the basic uh, numbers uh, and then bring everybody else into the conversation. So the top line numbers are these. Um, uh, If asked who they would vote for for Congress if the election were held today, and we always remind people polls are a snapshot of the moment, not a prediction of the election, uh, 56 percent said they would vote for the Democratic candidate, only 32 percent said they'd vote for the Republican candidate. So that's a pretty stark number. What's interesting about that, though, Jim, is that um, when asked why they'd vote for a Democrat and not a Republican, 54% said because of economic issues. Hmm. That seems counterintuitive, considering that all of the polls that we've seen of larger populations suggest that the state of the economy today is pushing people toward the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, look, over the last uh, uh, two years you've, of or eighteen months of Joe Biden's uh, administration, you've had a lot of federal money pumped into into COVID, uh, COVID related issues. So there's 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 something to that, you know. It, but uh, I want to pick up on what Bernard was saying about uh, about the, the 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 kind of the. Just the myriad kind of facets of, of the Hispanic vote in the United States. It, uh, one little one little thing jumped out at me uh, 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 during the last few days over uh, Ron DeSantis' uh, decision to to ship that plane load of of asylum seekers uh, uh, to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, they were all Venezuelan, okay. Uh, uh, and Republicans have just been been very very uh, critical uh, critical of of the of of the government in Venezuela for its socialist tendencies. All right, so basically they took they took refugees from this social uh, socialist regime and punished them by sh- sending them to Martha's Vineyard. And uh, DeSantis was actually getting pushback. In uh, among uh, Cuban Americans in Miami, in Miami, for doing that. So it's a this is it's a, it's a very tricky demographic. You you pretty much have to go almost country by country of origin uh, to to get any handle on on where these people are headed politically in the United States. I'd like to dig in a little more in a moment on uh, 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 DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas pulling these political stunts, sending undocumented uh, uh, refugees, uh, uh, immigrants uh, out of state to Washington, to New York, to Martha's Vineyard, and how that may play out in the Latino community. We'll do that in a minute. But Audrey, on this general issue of 
where the Latino vote is headed. I'd love to get your thoughts. Well, I would just add a couple of things is that, um, you know, parties and uh, the actors of parties, mainly their candidates and elected officials, can really drive a lot of what we see. You know, people are out there and maybe their circumstances as individuals are the same, but they may be responding to different things that people are saying. And that's very much dynamic. So, you can, this is all very coalitional, right? You know, you have coalitions of groups that come together. So even in the Republican Party, if we think that those numbers are not that great, if it is an increase, it can shift the, the total amount in their coalition. And very close elections, it can have an impact. But I would also argue that, you know, you really have, we live in dynamic times. Um, and now with the techniques that candidates have and parties have to actually target people, they can target beyond demographics. They can target to psychographics. They can target to very specific circumstances. And sometimes these people can be persuaded by that information. So times are different, and it's really difficult to rely just on the patterns we see in general demographics. We have to look at things like psychographics. I mean, people even dig into personalities. And you may be a member of the Hispanic or black community, but you may have a relatively conservative personality and you may respond to someone. It really depends on what people care about the most. And that really varies. Right. Raul. Yeah. And I, Raul, I think one of the points that Audrey makes is worth picking up on. Um, it, it, the, the Times poll may say that that uh, the Latino vote, it tends to be more Democratic, far more Democratic than Republican. But here in Georgia, where you've got at least one race, if not two races, for governor and lieutenant and uh, U.S. Senate that are razor thin in terms of the uh, potential outcomes, uh, it only it doesn't take many votes to sway the uh, 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 the winner one way or the other. And when I what I see from both sides when they're on the campaign trail is they can't leave any votes on the table, you know on whether it's in the Asian-American community, Hispanic community, black voters, if there are Hispanic voters, Latino Latino voters, that they can go get either side, they're going to go out and make that outreach. And I think one important candidate we should mention is John King, who you see at, at regularly at Kemp events. And, you know, as the Kemp event wraps up, what you see is John King move off to the side to Spanish-speaking media on a regular basis. That was something we really saw starting during COVID. You know, we would have COVID press conferences, and then you'd have John King step aside and, and reach out to, to Spanish-speaking media. That, that's something I'm watching, but you can't, in the era that we're in now, when, you know, a presidential race is decided by less than 12,000 votes, a governor's race that was decided by less than 55,000, you can't leave any votes on the table. We should remind people John King is running as a Republican candidate for insurance commissioner. He was appointed to that position by uh, Kemp when there was an opening, now running for uh, for the full term. Uh, and he does, in fact, have a, a Hispanic uh, background. Um, Bernard, what what do you make of the impact? And, and I know this is subjective and you don't have data on this, but these these publicity stunts, and I really think it's fair to call them that, by Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, how do you imagine they play out in the Latino community? Yeah, I mean, this is this is complicated. I think that, again, as we discussed, you know, national origin differences within the Latino community are critical. Um, there's a, a couple points to make here. First of all, 70% of Latino eligible voters in the country are of Mexican origin. So we talk about a Latino vote and shifts in the Latino vote, with the exception of a place like Florida, where even there, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans make up, you know, about a quarter of Latinos. Uh, you know, a lot of the shifts or lack thereof um, are among one single national origin group. Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans are a tiny, tiny fraction of even the Latino electorate, not to mention the whole electorate. Outsized influence in Florida, but, you know, this is important to note. Uh, the second thing is that I think it's about conflicts between what we're seeing in terms of outreach to try and bring in new voters and to try and maintain, right, new voters, and I mean Hispanic voters here, and trying to maintain their base among white voters. 
right? So DeSantis and his efforts about, you know, um, somewhere accusing calling this a kidnapping, but sending migrants, asylum seekers to Massachusetts was not really about appealing to Latino voters by any means. That's what we're talking about. It's about appealing yeah. to a white voter base. And so I, I think it's, it shows the broader conflict, the coalitional politics that are there, or Republicans might talk about making inroads with Latino and Hispanic voters, Venezuelan, Cuban, Mexican, whatever we want to say, their most critical demographic, the one they need to turn out to vote, is white voters, especially white conservative voters, who frankly don't share the majority opinion among Latinos regarding issues like immigration. Audrey? Can I, can I follow up? So, you know, um, in class, I was talking about speechwriting the other day in our applied politics class, and one of the things we referenced was Aristotle, and he talked about when you're making any kind of argument, you really have to make sure that the logic is there. So let's look at what DeSantis did. He wants to make a point about illegals. Oh, big issue in Florida. What did he have to do? He had to go over to Texas, and he had to not only go over to Texas, he had to go and said, headhunters looking for uh, people to put on a bus. And then he tricks them. I mean, it's so awful when you actually hear the details. They had someone give out McDonald's gift cards to people, you know, who might have been hungry and, you know, who were who confused. And then they, they lied to them. In the end, DeSantis did something that is that fights against the logic of the issue he was talking about. And two, he was mean. He did something really mean. He acted in a way that most Americans, no matter what party they're from, if they thought about it for two seconds as a human being, they would find to be quite disgusting. Jim? Yeah, and it looks like it looks like uh, he has kind of taken uh, the, the reaction to heart. Uh, there was a second flight that uh, that reporters kind of cottoned on to uh, uh, this with the same carrier uh, that was that that was scheduled to fly to the airport near where Joe Biden lives in Delaware, and uh, and after you had a a a, a sheriff in, in a Texas county where these flights originated uh, open a criminal investigation that that flight was uh, suddenly disappeared. Uh, but if, if uh, Bernard, if I could get you on 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 a on a, to, to elaborate on one thing on just when you're going after. It's Hispanic voters. How, as an as as a group, and I know you, we we've talked about how different they they are uh, within within their own structure. Is how long does it take for a Hispanic voter uh, who has come to this country to become politically active? I know. I mean, in in uh, in you know, with 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 my own people, maybe with 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 Nuggets people, you know, you 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 almost skip. It's it's the it's the third generation. Is that is it the same thing with with Hispanics? Well, you know, it's complicated. It's complicated by issues like citizenship. But I think, you know, one important thing to note, and I've done some work on this, is that the gains that Trump made in 2020 relative to 2016 were not concentrated among the kind of more what we might think of as assimilated, English-dominant, third, fourth-generation uh, immigrants or third or fourth generation Americans of Hispanic descent. It was largely among the children of immigrants. It was among people who are the first generation born in the U.S. who have an immigrant narrative, where something like, as Audrey mentioned, the stunt that DeSantis pulled, you know, might, um, even for a conservative voter, engender a kind of reaction uh, that undermines these gains. So, you know, to me, I think when we talk about you know, how long it takes for a population to become politically active. It's very driven by the issues of the day. And when we're talking about voting, it's really driven also by ability to acquire citizenship. But when you look at the Hispanic electorate, you know, on the whole, you don't see patterns that indicate that, for example, Hispanics, the longer they're in the country, become more conservative. You have many, many uh, Trump supporters whose parents are immigrants um, or even who are immigrants themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where things like what DeSantis did um, you know, might might lead to some backlash. Raul? Uh, and, and Jim, I wanted to talk about a little bit about the Asian American experience and what I've seen, whether it's in my personal life or, you know, what I see around me. It is the second generation that, that usually jumps in, um, you know, usually during their college years and gets politically active in both directions. And here's one other interesting dynamic. Us, as, and I am second generation, my parents were the one who, who came from India. Then we as second generations reach back and pull our, our parents' 
into this. And, and that happened with my wife. She reached back and pulled her parents uh, into politics. And, 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 you know, my mom became an American citizen. And now she votes. So that's kind of the dynamic. It's the second generation that gets involved, reaches back for the first generation. But as, as, as Professor Fraga said, it is important to point out that, you know, within our community, we're, we're seeing, you know, Asian Americans who are both turning towards the Republican Party and turning towards the Democratic Party and are, are, are making that outreach. They're the ones who are reaching out to bring Herschel Walker to an Indian temple or to an Indian shopping center to bring Raphael Warnock to a popular Asian American park in Gwinnett County. So those are the people on the ground who are doing that work. So um, one of the things that you point out in that respect, Raul, um, and Audrey, we talked about this just a little bit before the show went on the air, uh, the Asian American community, the Latino community, for that matter, the black community, micro-targeting is more important than ever uh, in this midterm election cycle, Audrey. Yeah, yes, it is. And, you know, one of the things that we've also been talking about in class is direct mail. One of the things we... um, we, we've learned is that people respond when they see pictures of themselves in that direct mail. If you have a candidate and they're uh, in photographs with all these people that don't even look like you, you know, subconsciously you wonder about, do they care about me? Because ultimately in politics, it's about, do you care about my problems and will you help me? Because that's why I want to elect you to be a representative. I was going to point out earlier that I think Stacey Abrams, um, you know, uh, regardless of what polls may show in terms of her lagging a bit behind, in terms of the ground game, they are targeting people. She's not discounting anybody. She talks about even people in the um, the black community as being persuadable. She's treating them like persuadable. She's not taking them for granted. And she's not taking for granted any members of that coalition, including people who live in rural areas including conservatives. Um, Okay, I'd like to close out this part of our conversation. But before I do, uh, Bernard, as I look at the New York Times poll, uh, as I hear the conversation here, I can't help but wonder if the issues among people in the Latino community are essentially quite similar to the issues in the overall voting population. And therefore, it's not a question of Republicans and Democrats uh, focusing on specific issues they think trigger the vote in those communities. It's just how the communities react to the issues in the same way the larger voting population does. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So you look at the number one issue in practically any poll that I've seen, certainly the New York Times Siena poll for Hispanic voters, is the economy. What are they worried about? Inflation, right? Displeasure with Biden's economic policies to the degree that they're linked to any of these issues, which, you know, um, is something that obviously people have many different opinions about. You know, that's their concern. People who are voting against Biden it's because of the economy. People who are voting for Biden is because they think he'll do a good job of fixing these issues. But I think this gets to the, the broader point, which is the fact that here in Georgia, in this election, Census projections indicate there are 442,000 Hispanic voters, right, who are citizens of voting age, who are eligible to vote. Yet, we see less than 175,000 who are registered to vote, and far less than that who actually vote. So the bottom line is that, again, it might not be about changing minds. It might be about bringing in new people into the electorate, Hispanic voters who say, who's going to do something that's going to improve my quality of life? They haven't seen that so far. We'll see what changes. Um, I, I, Raul, I know you want to get in, and I'm going to, I want to give you that. We'll extend this segment just a couple more minutes. Jim, what, what um, uh, Bernard just said, I remember this issue going back to the 90s in Georgia politics. I remember Democrats, especially like Roy Barnes, talking about the fact that getting Hispanic voters to register and participate in the elections was a very, very long, difficult process. And it goes in some ways to... Jim, to what you said about at what point does a new population, a minority population, get involved in the politics uh, of the time? Right, and and, and and quite frankly, I think it was maybe uh, the, 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 the turn of the century, back in 2000, when you actually started seeing Hispanic voters show up in polls, that, 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 that their numbers yes. were getting large enough to... Uh, 
to 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 register with with pollsters, which again reinforces the fact that there are people that need to be messaged to. And, and Raul, the same thing is happening now in the Asian American uh, community, where there is now a sudden awareness that this is a population that needs to be. Uh, paid attention to. So um, that community is a little behind the curve compared to where uh, the the Hispanic or Latino community is today, right? I did my first story on Asian American turnout in Georgia in 2006. And and every time I do the story, the numbers kind of just turn. Then it was 2020 and suddenly, boom, (laughs) you know, that, you know, that you saw that massive jump in turnout from 2016 to 2020. I want to hit on two quick points by the professors. Retail politics are such a big deal in the Asian American community. To be seen, you know, talk about that uh, Herschel Walker, Nikki Haley event that was at an Asian American mall. After the event, they stayed and take, took pictures with just about every single person in line. And then on, on the, the, the point about issues, that's an interesting thing when you talk about Asian American voters. Let me give you a perfect example. The issue of crime. There are, you're seeing different approaches. You see Democrats talking about, you know, hate crimes aimed at Asian Americans. You see Republicans talking about crime aimed at Asian American small businesses. So there are different approaches. Same with education. You can see ways where education can be voted toward Republicans or Democrats on, with Asian American voters. It is not monolithic. There are voters to be, I've said this before, there are Asian American voters to be had by all sides. Raul Bali gets the last word on this. I'm going to thank you for a really, really interesting conversation about an important uh, 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 population, two populations uh, that will be voting in the upcoming elections, or we hope will be voting in the upcoming elections. Let's do this. Let's get first break the show out of the way. Come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Audrey Haynes, Bernard Frager, Raul Bali, Jim Galloway join me for today's Political Rewind. Um, let's talk about the House vote this week on uh, the changes that uh, uh, they want to make. And the Senate, by the way, has a similar bill uh, to the final step in certifying a presidential election, which is that the uh, votes of the states, the electoral votes of the states are presented in a joint session of Congress and they are certified. We all remember that in 2020, Donald Trump argued over and over again that uh, Vice President Pence, who presides over that session, as all vice presidents do, could, if he wanted to, reject the certification of the votes for Joe Biden. Of course, that was incorrect. But it led people to recognize that the uh, Constitution's uh, uh, language on how that process unfolds could use clarification. So, Jim, let's talk a little bit about the impact of this new bill, which has passed the House and which will uh, now be uh, talked out in a conference committee with the Senate version of the bill, um, and, and the fact that it does have some, some relevance because, in some ways, it's a response to things that happened in Georgia and some other states. So, among other things, the, um, the new bill makes it clear that the role of Congress in all of this is strictly procedural, in some ways ceremonial. We know that. But the second thing it does is that it um, says that um, it is no longer possible for a single member of Congress to challenge the electoral vote count in a given state. And Jim, that's something that happened in George's congressional delegation as individual Republicans challenged uh, the votes here. From now on, you've got to have something like a two-thirds vote of the entire uh, uh, sitting 
members to do that. I'm not sure if I've got that correct, but you know, a single member can no longer do it. Yeah, in the, in the House version, I think uh, it uh, it would require 33 percent, a third of the of, of the chamber oh, okay. uh, vote to, okay. to challenge it, uh, and then uh, in but in the Senate version, it, it that drops down to 20 percent. I think of uh, 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 one in five. Uh, but it does make clear that the vice president's role in 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 this process in, is purely ministerial. Uh, he cannot he 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 has no power to reject uh, the electors as as Donald Trump was pushing Mike Pence to do on January sixth with all with with all those uh, threats both uh, both uh, implied and 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 direct. I thought what was interesting to, to your point about this this being kind of a hangover of January sixth is that none of our Republican voters. Uh, I mean, our Republican members of Congress uh, supported th- th- uh, that bill, uh, uh, in part because it would be a it would be a, a kind of an implied uh, criticism of of Donald Trump's argument that he didn't lose the election, but also because the the the, the chief Republican sponsor of that is Liz Cheney. Uh, and and I, and I thought I thought one of the more interesting things was that yes, all our our our, our members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, voted against it, but uh, Barry Loudermilk actually got uh, uh, went up and and spoke to the bill, and he says he and he said he didn't oppose it in principle. His his he he was criticizing the lack of Republican input there. So I think there there he may be trying to create some wiggle room there. Uh, Bernard, I know this is an area of expertise. This is you, election law is one of the things that mm. you have studied as, as part of your work. Um, and I'm interested in another measure in the House bill and would love to have your comments on it. And then, Audrey, I want you to jump in on this, too. Um, the bill says that a candidate can file a lawsuit if the electoral vote if the if the delegation the electoral uh, 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 electors who are chosen uh, do not reflect what the popular vote was in a state so we had the fake slate of electors here in Georgia that uh, Trump allies put together under this if, if, if this bill becomes law uh, presumably uh, the and and that slate were submitted as the um, as the correct and legal slate, uh, this would trigger legal action to prevent them from actually uh, uh, being seated. Is it? Do I have that close to correct? <laughs> you know, I, I think that's that's largely right. We have to remember there's a broader context going on. The Supreme Court is going to evaluate this so-called independent state legislatures doctrine, um, which might many people interpret that as perhaps opening the door to states. Uh, state legislatures being able to basically subvert the popular voter president in their state and select their own electors. Uh, I think that provision of the bill is an attempt to, to the extent possible, basically say that that's not going to happen without a fight, a legal fight mm-hmm. in this case, and, and determine whether that's in line with the U.S. Constitution, but also state constitution. So I, I think that, you know, again, uh, just like the, the entire kind of uh, electoral count act revision, um, you know, that we're seeing in this bill, it's an attempt to anticipate potential strategies for subverting the election. It's not clear that it actually fixes the underlying problem, which is the idea that individuals who do not like the outcome of an election feel entitled to challenge that, push it, push it, push it, and use the law to advance a position that is clearly undemocratic, small d democratic, of course. It's against the will of the people. And I think that that's uh, the deeper problem that this bill and no bill is really addressing. Um, Audrey, and then Raul, let me get you in here. Um, Audrey, one of the reasons that Republicans in the Georgia delegation apparently did vote against this measure is exactly what Bernard's talking about. They want to, they believe that states ought to have more control over the electoral process, over the delegations that that go to the, you know, that are that are in fact electors, and um, and this bill says no, uh, elections are still the province of the federal government. Well, you know, in looking at last night, I was looking at both of the bills, and um, before I answer that question, I would respond to Loudermilk's criticism, and and that response would be, Republicans could have written their own bill. 
there were multiple bills on electoral form. And initially, there were a lot of Republicans, uh, including some of the people close to Trump, um, who were saying, oh, this shouldn't happen. This is bad. And we need to plug up these holes. Um, as to that one, I would argue that the, the bill itself, as presented in the House, basically, you know, says uh, states can make the rules, have jurisdiction over uh, a lot of things before the election takes place. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to do it in advance yeah. so you're not responding to electoral um, things that have just happened. So, um, you know, one of the arguments that is in here is that the House bill does too much. And even on the Democracy Network, where they're talking about the, a lot of the legal issues, Democrats are a little concerned with some of the wording as well um, due to circumstances. They think at least some things um, open too much. But I would make this case. Um, both of the bills need to go to conference. They need to plug up the holes that are most important and, and get something passed um, because you really don't want to see that again. But I, I think you are correct when you said they were trying to anticipate some of the issues that could come up. And that's really some of the smaller issues, aside from the big, big loopholes, are really kind of what's tying up this, these two pieces of legislation. By the way, both of them have bipartisan support, but that one in the House is only, was only supported by Republicans who either have lost their primaries or are retiring. Yes. No yes, Republicans. Exactly. And I'm just going to say shame on them because they recognize it's a problem. Yeah, it. I mean, it's the world we're living in, right? I mean, if Democrats want it, Republicans don't. That's all there is to it. And and, and unfortunately, quite often, it's the opposite way as well. Raul and then uh, Bernard, please continue this conversation. Bill, I want to bring this back to Georgia. You know, when we return to the state capitol in January, no matter who's governor, no matter who's the lieutenant governor, I am absolutely going to be looking for legislation that deals with how Georgia handles its electoral college vote. It is, and whether that legislation either makes things more vague, more specific, puts it in the hands of the legislature, these are questions that, that I'm going to be asking and bills I'm going to be looking for down at the state capitol when we get back in January. Bernard? You know, so we mentioned uh, something about, you know, the idea, this is a bill that's being passed by Congress, you know, the elections are still run by states. And it's very important. This is a point that, like, day one in my election law class, states run elections. States run the rules of elections, the process of elections, all of these things, right? The only difference here is, again, when a state is following literally the procedure that is set out for how they can do it, right, that they determine all the voting procedures, they can't go in and change their mind after the result because they don't like it. It's the same way that the federal kind of, you know, the Voting Rights Act, these important pieces of legislation are simply saying, you know, you can't go in and disenfranchise people after you say that they should be able to get the vote. You can't go in and change the results of the election because you don't like what you see. These are fundamental components of how our democracy and our elections work. And again, I think it's just sad that we're in a world now where we're talking about the election results themselves basically being open to interpretation. Um, That's, that's not the way things should be. Jim. Uh, yeah, just one last thing that a uh, point I'd like to make is that that uh, th- these these two bills now go to reconciliation, and uh, a final vote uh, in either chamber isn't anticipated until after the general election. This will be decided by a lame duck uh, Congress, that uh, uh, which which. Yeah. I suppose could uh, could free up a few more Republicans in the House uh, to, to vote for it if 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 they're not coming back or feel a little bit more secure. Well, I, before we take our final break of the show, I think there is one more thing we should re- remember about all of this uh, and the fact that Republicans in the House at least opposed it uh, generally, and that is we're also talking about a midterm election in which. Um, there are secretaries of state candidates across the country who are election deniers um, and who could be voted in and put in positions where they will be able to influence the outcome of elections in their states um, uh, based on their politics. We don't have that situation in Georgia. Audrey, we have Brad Raffensperger, who stood strong for uh, 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 
preserving the election properly. But Jim, you jumped, you waved at me about that. Don't I have yeah, that yeah, right? You, I mean, yes. Raffensperger is no, no, not. You, no, absolutely. You you do have Raffensperger here uh, uh, on on the Republican ticket, but you also have Burt Jones, who participated in 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 the in in the fake elector scheme, and who uh, who who uh, you know who who was was ready to to ask Mike Pence to. To uh, con- consider tossing out uh, the Georgia results, and and to uh, Rose's point is, you know, if if he is elected in November, he'll preside over the state senate, and and will have a a, a a say in in what kind of electoral legislation gets passed. Yeah, fair enough. Um, by the way, we got to get to a break, but I want to thank you. Uh, for helping me, especially Professors Fraga and Haynes, for uh, trying to get through what this measure uh, does. Um, I think it's a fascinating uh, development. We're going to watch how this bill moves forward in reconciliation. We've got more to talk about on Political Rewind. We'll get to that after the break. Donald Trump is apparently uh, going to come to Georgia at some point to hold a rally for Republican candidates and, of course, to talk about himself uh, sometime before the election. And I want to talk about that in a minute because uh, between his legal problems and some of the things he's been saying lately in interviews, Trump continues to loom large over the 2022 midterm election. And if you don't mind, I want to start this segment by sharing with you what I think was a wonderful email I got from Kevin Green, who's a listener from Winterville. And here's what he was responding to. Donald Trump told Sean Hannity the other night that he didn't necessarily even have to speak words to declassify documents, which he had done, but he could simply think that they were declassified. Kevin Green reminded me of The Music Man, um, a show in which a con man rolls into an Indiana town pretending to know something about music, selling musical instruments to uh, uh, vulnerable families. And when they finally show up in town and he is forced by the sheriff to show that these kids can do that, play their music, he develops the think System. Let's just listen to a moment of that. Oh, I now have a revolutionary new method called the Think System, where you don't bother with notes. Think about the minuet in G. If you want to play the minuet in G, think the minuet in G. <laughs> and that. Jim Galloway is how Donald Trump declassifies documents. Kevin Green, yeah, I was laughing out loud. Thank you for that. All right, but now this is serious, Jim. Trump comes to town, apparently. Who shows up for his rally? Which Republican candidates want to be there? And how tight is the race at that point? I mean, right now the speculation is is that that Trump would do this sometime after the debate between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock in Savannah, which well is is, is the fourteenth? Is that one? It's the fourteenth, I yes. believe. Yes. So yes. it would be. So it would be if it's if it's it's interesting. It, it's uh, that would be kind of that would be t- toward the latter part of. October, but if any gaffe were made, it, it would be a recoverable uh, kind of there'd be a there to be a period to recover. But I I I do think that it's going to depend on where these candidates think they stand in the polls at that very moment. Uh, if if Herschel Walker is is laying far behind uh, 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 Warnock, you know, I, I can't I can't see Herschel ducking Donald Trump. But but maybe maybe trying to trying to trying to 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 have as little presence as possible. Brian Kemp does he show up? I'm not sure that I I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. Burt Jones, who's facing Charlie Bailey in the in the lieutenant governor's race, he would have to show up. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it 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 does. It does. The, the the problem here is, and we saw this in Pennsylvania just a couple of weeks ago, right? That Donald Trump may be going to 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 a site on behalf of this candidate or that candidate, but this candidate or that candidate gets very very little face time with the crowd that he draws, because it all becomes about Donald Trump. Um, 
Raul Cody Hall that was on our show the other day. He, of course, is director of communications for the Kemp campaign. And I think when we asked him about Kemp's uh, likelihood of being on a stage with Donald Trump, he made it pretty clear without saying it directly that Kemp would be otherwise engaged. Raul? Yeah, I mean, I I, I would not expect to see Governor Kemp. You know, he hasn't been at the last few rallies. Uh, I would expect to see Herschel Walker. I would expect to see Burt Jones up there. You know, and and made me realize, you know, the one person I haven't thought about yet, and maybe uh, I'll I'll go try to figure out, is Chris West, uh, who is the Republican challenging Sanford Bishop in southwest Georgia's 2nd Congressional District. That's actually one that now I'm I'm wondering, I'd like to go find out whether uh, he intends to be at that event. But, you know, that weekend could get pretty exhausting if, if we have the Herschel Walker uh, Raphael Warnock debate on Friday night, the 14th, a Donald Trump rally on Saturday, the 15th, and then on the 16th, the beginning of the Atlanta Press Club debate. That could be a really, really long weekend and a, a really big political weekend. I do want to take up one quick point of what Jim said. Jim, you, you mentioned, you know, if you make a gaffe that weekend, it is still important to note that early voting starts that Monday on the 17th. So, you know, and, and we've seen the turnout. So, so yes, that's a short, you know, oh, there's a big di- distance to Election Day, but you will have voters going to the polls that Monday. Audrey? Well, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, one, um, a few of those candidates, if they show up, you already said Trump's not likely going to give them very much face time. He's got so many things that he needs to talk about in terms of his own victimization. So they're probably not going to get a lot of face time. But, you know, um, they can work the crowd. You know, they may be off on the side doing some things. So some of them may show up there. And, um, you know, we also may see the introduction of a new draw from Trump, the Trump Defense Fund. You know, forget about the election defense fund. We may see new things coming out via email on the Trump Defense Fund. So I don't know what's going to happen with this this rally. I, I think, like Patricia Murphy said, Governor Kemp is going to be washing his hair at that time. That was a great line. Um, and, and each of the candidates are going to have to strategically think about what they have to gain or what they have to lose uh, in, in that sense. But, I mean, it's sad when you have to, you know, you're tasked with that question, that the person who is leading your party is both, um, you know, uh, so beloved by a certain percentage of the base, but also so detested. You know, it's a, it's an either or. There's nothing in between. Bernard? So, you know, it's interesting we're having this conversation. And for the governor, I certainly understand some trepidation about, uh, you know, appearing on stage with Donald Trump. And who knows what would happen? I don't even know. There'd be some fireworks. would be very fascinating. But again, we're forgetting, I mean, Donald Trump is the most popular Republican um, among Republicans in the United States right now. He's the leader of the party, as Audrey said, right? I mean, he is the front runner in the 2024 nomination race to the extent that that's happening. Maybe he'll announce he's running again um, at that rally. So, I mean, to me, you know, we are, we cannot um, undersell the power of the former president in being able to draw out, mobilize, energize Republican voters. And I, you know, I understand, you know, the dynamics, especially for Governor Kemp, who's leading in the polls, maybe because of these kind of more moderate Republicans and swing Democratic voters. But for other Republicans down the ballot, uh, you know, they want that Trump energy. They certainly want that Trump energy on Election Day during early voting. And it seems like being out there with Trump is the best way to do it. You know, all of this, of course, I think, Bernard, you just made a very important point. Jim, Donald Trump continues to be the single most powerful figure in the Republican Party. Um, and, and that uh, is a stark fact that both parties have to deal with, not just in the midterms, but moving toward 2024. Yeah, he's both he's both the most uh, popular figure in Republican uh, circles and the most uncontrollable. Uh, what I mean, I, I mean, here's a thought. If you remember, I mean, two or three appearances back, uh, Donald Trump was saying maybe Stacey Abrams wouldn't be such a so bad as a governor, 
And if that happens, if that happens uh, on on uh, on the weekend of October sixteenth, you have to wonder what impact that might have. Whether it will cause voters again, to, uh, Republican voters again, to sit at home. Raul, as we uh, get toward the end of the show, one quick uh, final word on this subject. I, I do want to ask the question: What is the power of Donald Trump in the state of Georgia when his name is not on the ballot? I think that's yeah. the one thing, because you saw how his candidates did here in Georgia. I mean, other parts of the country, they did great. But with his name not on the ballot this time, what is the percentage of voters we're talking about? 3%, 2%, well, 5%? That's what I want to know. It, okay, well, it is true. Obviously, the Republican voters uh, 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 didn't vote for his candidates, David Perdue, Jody Heiss. So that is an interesting question. But we're now talking about general election voters. All right, Jim, we're really short on time. But, you know, Mike Bill Thurman, uh, DeKalb County CEO, was uh, uh, with us yesterday. And we spent a good amount of time talking about an event that you wrote a beautiful essay on in the AJC. Nice to see you back in the pages of the paper, by the way. And that was the dedication of this bridge that had initially been in Athens, a wooden covered bridge that it turns out was built by a freed slave. It now sits on the edge of Stone Mountain Park. And you made the point in your column that this is about the effort to start changing the image of a park that has stood for the lost cause, for the Confederacy, for so long. And Thurman was so articulate and eloquent in talking about how this can bring us together if we start looking at history honestly. Right. This was this was kind of the planting of a flag here that 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 uh, in 1958, an all white male uh, uh, state legislature declared uh, the Stone Mountain Park to be a, a, a sacred place. And it's going to stay that way until the legislature decides otherwise. But th- this 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 rededication of the covered bridge was a message that. If it has to be a Confederate memorial, that's not all it has to be. It can be a place where other histories are told accurately. And and Michael Thurman makes the point in in his speech and on the air yesterday that this is going to be a park for all of us. And if we have on this show conversations about how divisive our politics is, I'm glad we can close the show today by talking about a guy like Mike Thurman, who's talking about how do we come together in some ways. We're completely out of time for today's show. Audrey Haynes, Bernard uh, Fraga, Raul Bali, Jim Galloway, what a great conversation uh, to end the week. Thank you all so much uh, for being with us. Uh, Thanks uh, to uh, my team, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Jake Cook for your work on Political Rewind. We're back again with a brand new show on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and I've started to say again, you know, there's a new booster shot out there. I got mine. Maybe you ought to think about getting yours as well. Take care, everybody.